1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now are not yet ready. You are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it is revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Here is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I wonder what your experience with temples is. Uh, any of you ever been in a Buddhist temple before? A few of you? How about uh, a Hindu temple? Anybody been in a Hindu temple? A few of you? Um, Anybody, anybody been to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem? Ah, a few of you. Interesting. Um, the only temple that I've been in is the one right up the street here, the Temple of the Latter-day Saints, when it was uh, being renovated a few years ago, and that was interesting. Uh, perhaps, maybe for some of you, the only temple you've seen was from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Uh, but, but temples are these places where people go to to meet God, to go to, to do some ceremonial thing uh, to encounter the living God. Perhaps when I say temple, you automatically go to uh, the temple in Jerusalem uh, that you might be reading about. I'm, I'm in Exodus uh, in my Bible reading, in my Bible plan, and I'm not reading about the temple, but I am reading about the plans for the tabernacle, this place where God was to meet with his people. 
And the, the Bible is so full of imagery in the Old Testament and in the New Testament and in the book of Revelation where we see this idea of this temple where God meets with his people. It's where sacrifices were made, where priests interceded, where atonement was offered. It's where only the specially consecrated people could go and uh, enter the holy place. Um, when we think about temples, particularly the, the temple in the Old Testament, we should remember that this was a place where only specific people could go, that only the circumcised, only the Jews could go, and in the holy place, only the, only the high priest and that only once per year. So even though we have this idea of a temple where people meet with God, it's so very limited uh, in how that was practiced in the, among the Jewish people. Not everyone was able to meet God in the temple. Only those that were called by God, according to, in, in the Old Testament, God's special people, the Jews, who had been circumcised. So as we think about a temple today, just think what it would be if you lived in a culture where you had to go to the temple to meet God, because that was normal for most of, most of creation and most of human history, that that was the way you met God, in a temple um, according to God's prescribed ways. And then we get to our passage today, and we see this discontinuity with that. We see something completely new, and it may not feel radical to us, but it is radical. Look in verse 16 again. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? So think of the whole arc of salvation history, and think of this incredible development right here that Paul is saying. We're in this sermon series through the book of 1 Corinthians that we're calling Being God's People. And so today we're going to be developing this idea of the significance that the temple is no longer a place, rather the temple is God's people. So I have three points this morning. Number one, church Y'all are the temple of God. We'll explain that later. Number two, church, be careful how you relate to your leaders. And number three, leaders serve with the day of the Lord in view. But before we jump in, let's pray again. Lord, what a privilege it is to come this morning and to, to be in your presence to have you meet with us, not because this is a special building, but because we are your special people. Lord, help us to feel the glory of that and the weight of that today. I pray, Lord, for mercy for the millions of people all around the world who are still trying to find their way to a God through a temple. And Lord, we pray that the good news of Jesus Christ would be taken to them, that they could hear the glory that the temple is, not, is no longer a place, that access to God is through a person, through Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would send missionaries and church planters and believers with this hope of the gospel to the ends of the earth. 
so that people might know this glorious truth. We pray that you would open blind eyes and deaf ears to the grace of Jesus Christ. Would you make us aware this morning of the reality that the Holy Spirit is with us as a church? Lord, would you use us to speak the mysteries of God to those around us? Would you make us into the holy people that you've called us to be? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So number one, church, y'all are the temple of God. Now, this is not because I'm from South Georgia, and that's just how we talk. That's, this is not why I'm saying this. It's because it's the plural in the text, and we'll get to that in a second. But these two chapters, now, Daniel gave me two chapters to preach today, and I'm hoping to only preach one sermon. So that's, that's how you can pray for me this morning and pray for yourselves. One sermon, two chapters. Got it. So... These chapters talk a lot about the church and its leaders. It may be the longest kind of section in Scripture that's just kind of dealing with the church and how the church relates to its leaders, but we want to start with kind of what's the big deal in the text, which is what we've highlighted so far. The big deal in our text is that God dwells among His people, not in a building, not in a temple. We read 316 Let's read it again. Do you not know that you, and that's plural, are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? Again, that's plural. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So not many of us, if, you know, if you're filling out one of those kind of get to know you questionnaires, they say, who are you? You know, not many of you say, well, I am the temple. Of the Holy Spirit. But as a church, we are God's temple. So let's leave aside the idea of the pagan temples that we kind of referred to earlier and just think about first century Judaism. Just think how, how crazy it would sound to a first century Jew if you said to them, Oh, no, no, you don't need to go to the temple any longer to meet with God. The temple is God's people. Think how radical that would be for the first century Jew. God's, God's presence is no longer mediated by this geographical space or by this, this building or by particularly consecrated individuals. God's presence is through, is through his people. It's not a particular feast day on a calendar his favor is not just limited to one ethnic group, it's his people. Now, you may think if I make all those statements, like temp, we don't need temples anymore, you make, okay, great. So, um, so God's presence is everywhere, and it, um, we don't need any concept of temple at all. But that's actually not where Paul goes. Instead, he points out that the temple isn't this building anymore, but it's not nothing either. The temple is God's people, it's God's church. We know it's not a building, right? We, we know it's not a building. But don't you love how sometimes our language betrays how ideas stick in our head? When I, I, some of you may have grown up in a church like I did that had a, what would you call this room? A sanctuary. Now, why would you call it a sanctuary? Because you're highlighting this room in some way is a holy place where we meet with God. Now, I, I hope we do meet with God in this room, 
But it's not because of the room. And in the church where I grew up, we had the sanctuary, and we also called this the what? This was called the altar. Now, we know we don't come make sacrifices on an altar in church today, and yet we had altar calls. You would come down to the altar to respond to the message. Now, I, I can explain it. You know, okay, so we're, you know, we're living sacrifices, you know, Romans 12. We could go there in all sorts of different ways. And certainly, we didn't believe in our church that we made atonement for our sins at the altar. But we still use that language, and it was probably just a ploy to keep the kids from running in the building, you know, which I think it's good to keep our kids from running in the building, uh, in, in the room to be considerate of others, but it's not because it's a holy room, because God isn't here in this room because of the room, he's here because he's with his people, and that's an important distinction that we need to make. There's not a special geography where God dwells. He dwells among his people. Now, this is a radical change with the inauguration of the church, that God no longer deals with us according to geography, buildings, structures, or even particular ceremonies or particular dates on the calendar. That's not how God works among his people anymore. Y'all are God's temple. Now, you may be thinking, Well, John, isn't there another verse in 1 Corinthians that talks about you're the temple of the Holy Spirit? And there is in chapter 6, verse 19, where it is singular, you know that you are, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. This is in the context of dealing with sexual immorality and some other things. We'll get to that verse in a few weeks. But the point in our chapter, in chapter 3, is that y'all, plural, the church, are the temple of God. Don't think, though, that because we're talking about a people and not a building, that the temple is unimportant to God. Don't think that it's unimportant. God's temple is God's people, and it's very important. In fact, look at at the end of 17 again. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So put yourself back in history, and just think if you were there when Solomon's temple that Solomon had built, when Solomon's temple had been sacked, when Jerusalem was sacked in 586 and Nebuchadnezzar came in and took all the things out of God's temple. Think of the anger of God's people. Think of the anger of God in that moment that his holy place was desecrated. Or maybe in 167 when Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the altar in the second temple. These have been horrible things. They should make you rightfully angry. But actually, how we treat the church is equally or more important than how a building was treated back in the Old Testament era. How we treat the church and how we treat other believers is spiritually significant. So God is speaking a warning to us through Paul about how we treat his temple. And that we not treat it in a careless way. And in fact, he says, if you actively destroy the temple, which isn't a building anymore, it's people, God will destroy you. That's a strong warning. But having said all that, so the temple is us, the temple is the church, the temple is holy to the Lord, and yet the temple is not perfect. I mean, if we look at 1 Corinthians, we're, we're filled with reminders that God's temple is not yet made perfect. He says it's holy, 
And yet there's plenty of evidence among us about our own temple here of the Holy Spirit and the temple in Corinth, the temple of the church at Corinth, which we don't really talk that way, the temple of the church at Corinth, that's weird. Let's just say the church at Corinth. But it was not perfect. And so this is good for us to remember that God loves the church, God loves his people, and yet his people are are not yet made perfect. And we see that in our passage so clearly at the beginning of chapter 3 that this church had immature believers. It had immature believers. There's a lot of evidence of this. Don't you feel bad for the guy who wrote this letter to Paul saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. That's what he's hearing saying. Like Paul uses that so many times in this letter. I just think it's funny. He has to I wish I hadn't have told him that. You know, he's, Paul is just really making a lot of business on that statement. But, but Paul goes into these immature believers. So Daniel mentioned um, couple, maybe last week that, you know, there are two categories of people here in chapter 2 and 3, not three categories of people. So in chapter 2, Paul talks about the natural person and the spiritual person. And in this, and in this comparison in chapter 2, the natural person does not have the Spirit of God, and the spiritual person does have the Holy Spirit, okay? So those are two groups of people. And now in chapter 3, Paul's going to slightly adjust his lens that he's looking at. So we need to see what he's doing here. So look back in chapter 3, verse 1. I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not with solid food, for you were not ready for it, and now you are still not ready For you are of the flesh. Are you not, uh, while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul and I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So who exactly is this group of people that Paul is describing? What category do they fit in? Some theologians have tried to make this third category of carnal Christians and carnal is not to be used in some kind of um, way that has to do with, with sexuality. It's just of the flesh, just fleshly Christians, carnal Christians. And this, this is theoretically a group of people that uh, have made a profession of faith, but their lives show no evidence that they are living like Christians. Now, I actually don't think that description fits the Corinthians. Now, Paul is going to address Lots of different individual specific ways that they're acting in fleshly, merely human ways. But he's not saying they have no evidence of actually having a credible profession of faith. I mean, these people are are doing church together. They're doing the Lord's table together. They're they're, um, doing spiritual gifts together, though not always in a helpful way. So let's not think of these people that Paul is addressing in chapter 3 as just people that Pray to prayer one day, but have no evidence of faith. That's not the group Paul is talking to. But they are immature. And they are disobeying some of the things God wants them to obey. So he's saying, he doesn't say you're not spiritual people. He's saying you're acting like unspiritual people. I couldn't address you as spiritual people, but as only infants in Christ. They were in Christ. 
Now, specifically, Paul addresses their, factual, their factionalism, where they're saying, you know, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, and the spiritual ones that say, I follow Christ. Uh, so he's, he's addressing that particular issue with relationship to this immaturity. But it's important just to realize the church at Corinth had immature believers. They were not perfect, and yet this is true about them that they are God's temple. Another problem with some of the Christians in Corinth here was that some of them acted like they had arrived spiritually. So some some were immature and some were acting like they had arrived spiritually. Look in chapter 4, jump ahead a chapter, to chapter 4, verse 8. Get ready for some irony, sarcasm. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Verse 10, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. So I think Paul's being a little sarcastic here. But they are acting as if they've somehow arrived spiritually. And Paul's just pointing out, you haven't. You may think you have, but you you haven't. And it's this amazing, like combination of spiritual immaturity and spiritual pride. You see that? They're actually being very spiritually immature, and yet they're, they're talking and acting as though they're spiritually proud. And in my experience, those two things often go together in my own life and in what I observe in others, that the very moments we're being immature, we think we're really something. And that's what's going on here in Corinth. So before we move on, let's just summarize the big deal so far. The church is God's temple, okay? God dwells in his church through the Holy Spirit, and this is a gift of God. That's truth number one. Truth number two, God's church is still in process. It is still flawed, sometimes significantly, and this doesn't negate truth number one, okay? Truth number one, God's church is God's temple. Truth number two, God's church is flawed. This does not negate number one. Therefore, Paul is going to give us further instructions for how to treat his church. So we're going to do this through two lenses. One, church, how do you relate to your leaders? And then number two, leaders, how do you lead in the church? So church, be careful how you relate to your leaders. This is one of the particular immaturities uh, within the Corinthian church. And so we're going to look at several things that Paul said to to help them. So first, I would say this. Church, don't put your identity in your leaders. Okay? Don't put your identity in your leaders. We've we've mentioned the fact that for the Corinthians, they gravitated gravitated towards certain kinds of leaders. Um, And then they defined their factions by the people that they followed. You know, they wanted these smooth-talking orators who sounded wise and, you know, were highly esteemed. And so they would kind of pick who their guy was. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. I follow Christ. He says, aren't you acting in a merely human way? In other words, the world does that. Like, the world can pick its leaders like that. 
And this is certainly a temptation for Christians today. With social media and our celebrity culture, we have all kinds of superstar pastors. We have popular authors. We even have like popular worship leaders. We have conference speakers, we have mega church pastors, YouTube creators. Christian leaders today can promote their brand, not just across town, but across the world. And this isn't all bad, that we have the influence of Christian speakers and leaders on the internet or across the world. But it does give us an incredible opportunity to be, I follow so-and-so. And, you know, it's, it's great that we have this incredible amount of Christian resources and content. And yet not all of this content is equally helpful or biblical. But Paul is warning us not to put our identity into any one person or school of thought. So we have this access to teachers. We also have a great access to criticism of teachers. So you can not only go onto YouTube and hear specific people teach about the Bible, but you can hear lots of people be critical of them. And we have to be careful that we don't, like, we don't fall into those kinds of wars about uh, individuals. Now, I'm just going to pick on us for a second. Uh, you, know, you know, one of perhaps the most popular version of, you know, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos could be I'm a Calvinist. Um, now, sometimes I might say I'm a Calvinist to somebody because I just want to save time, <laughs> right? Like, I could explain a lot of things. We could talk about a lot of things. But for an economy of language, I say, I'm a Calvinist. And that communicates a lot of things. But what it should not mean is I'm better than this other person because I agree with the teachings of this one man uh, or this system of thought or however it is. So, you know, if I'm saying I'm a Calvinist to kind of um, shut down conversation or relationship with someone else, that's, that's unhelpful. Or to be spiritually proud, that's unhelpful. But it doesn't have to be somebody long dead like Calvin. It could be a modern author, speaker, pastor. We should be careful. We should be careful for that. Um, In chapter 3, verse 21, Paul says, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Now, this is part of what Philip read this morning. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is gods. So we don't want to associate with one teacher versus another and miss out on the great benefit of what God is doing in the world through all kinds of teachers and preachers and people. Um, We belong to Christ. We belong to God. And all of these who can contribute well to the church belong to the church. So it's helpful for us to remember we've been blessed not just by superstar Christians, but by the regular ordinary people. So it's just an exercise for you maybe one day this week in your devotion. Why don't you just make a list of some of the people that have, have actually impacted your faith that aren't superstars, that aren't famous. In fact, maybe they're really flawed. I've got some of those in my story. 
I'm sure you do too. Some people that significantly impacted me in my walk of faith for good have gone down some really wrong paths later in life. But you know what? I'm still grateful for their investment in me. Now, here at Cornerstone, we embrace a plurality of elders. We have multiple leaders. And one of the reasons is we don't, we don't want kind of this personality-driven church. And we're at no risk of being a personality-driven church. I mean, we're just normal guys trying to, trying to be faithful. And none of us claim to be anything, and we are nothing, right? We're just, we're just men trying to serve the church. But it is good to remind us that we avoid, we, we're even careful among ourselves not to have an attitude or actual words of, I follow Daniel, I follow Mike, I follow Jim, I follow John, I follow Phil. Like, I don't ever hear that kind of language, but we're not above it, right, as a church, so we should beware of that. Uh, so we shouldn't get our identity from our leaders. Next, we should not judge our leaders wrongly. We all face a temptation to judge those who are in leadership over us, whether that's in the church or our job. Sometimes we, we just have a judgmental attitude toward them. And this is true in the church as well. It could be something as simple as personality. Like, I, don't, I just don't, I don't get John. Or it could be uh, maybe... It could be not just personality, maybe leadership style or teaching style. It could be maybe I don't appreciate how a particular leader led through a particular situation. Or maybe they said something that offended me. And yet Paul warns them not to judge their leaders wrongly. Look in chapter 4, verse 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and disclose the purposes of the heart. And then each one will receive his commendation from God. Now, Paul is not saying that, that we can't evaluate and judge leaders in the church. That's actually not what he's saying. All of our leaders, are, we can be criticized, we can be corrected, um, we're, but we're ultimately not accountable to people, but to God. And that's the point that Paul is making, is that leaders are accountable to God, who actually knows all things, including the motives of our hearts. And in this sense, like, the accountability that Paul's talking about is terrifying. Like, God not only knows what I've done, but why I did it. But I'm encouraged, because Paul doesn't go there. He doesn't go to, this is terrifying. He goes to, then each one will receive his commendation from God. Like, God knows our efforts to serve him, and he will not let that go unrewarded. So don't judge your leaders wrongly. Don't judge as if you can see into their hearts, but rather judge fairly. Uh, next, don't boast as if you've not benefited from others. We kind of hinted at this, but in chapter 4, verse 6, he says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So don't be puffed up. And why do you boast if what you have that's any good is something you received? 
So don't be puffed up or proud towards others. And whatever wisdom or maturity that we have attained, there are no Christians who got there by pulling themselves up from their own bootstraps. There is no one, either in their salvation or their sanctification, that just did that for themselves. We've received it from the Lord, and we've often received those things from others, those teachings, that understanding, that wisdom. We didn't come up with it on our own, so don't boast as if we did. In fact, Paul doesn't even take credit for his own ministry. Look in chapter 3, verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me... Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Someone else is building upon it. Let each take care of how he builds upon it. So even Paul says, look, I'm, I'm nothing. What I have is what I received. It was the grace of God working in me, Paul says. So another way the church should relate to its leaders is in chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. And that is, you should imitate your leaders. Imitate your leaders. Verse 16, I urge you then be imitators of me. That's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. So there is a higher call in the church to believers than to merely learn from teachers and preachers. So the image that came to my mind is this is not golden corral. Our elders don't just put out a buffet so that you can pick out the self-serve ice cream and the chocolate-covered strawberries. That's, that's, not, that's not what's happening here in our church. We're called to imitate our leaders. Chapter 11, Paul's going to qualify this. He says, be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. So there's qualification. In Philippians, Paul goes even further. He says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Or chapter 4, verse 9. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Practice these things. Try to get better at them. Or Hebrews chapter 13. Remember your leaders, church. Those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now we're not talking about surface level imitation here like hairstyle. I know that y'all are all tempted. Uh, Speech patterns or, you know, well, my pastor uses a Mac, not a PC. You know, this is not the kind of imitation we're talking about. We're talking about character. When you think about the the qualifications for elders, so many of them are about character. And Paul is saying here, you need to imitate those kinds of people. Watch how they live out the ethics of their beliefs. They believe this, they live this way. Pay attention to those things and imitate those things. It seems that the Corinthians were, on one hand, um, they, on one hand, they were identifying too closely with their leaders, right? I follow Paul. But on the other hand, they were not living ethically by imitating their leaders. One final word to the church here. Um, 
Eagerly receive your leader's correction. Eagerly receive your leader's correction. So one of the consequences of our buffet mentality, our golden corral environment, is that we really feel justified in just picking and choosing the kind of input we want from our leaders. It's like, you know, we can choose which TED Talks we listen to. You can choose which podcasts you play in your car. But Paul, he's going beyond that. He's saying, look, you need to imitate your leaders, but you also need to receive their correction. They should not be viewed in that same way. Look in chapter 4, verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. In other words, Paul's saying, look, I I need to speak some words of correction to you. That's admonish, to to correct. But I want to do it as my beloved children. He's, He's saying, I'm not trying to be mean to you. I care for you deeply. I want what's best for you. I want you to know my fatherly concern. And he's going to spend a lot of the rest of the book correcting them. Look in verse 21, he gives them a choice. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? He's asking them, look, do you want, do you want to learn by the, the harsh word, the rod, or Do you want to live by the gentle, learn by the gentle word of correction? One of my favorite pictures of this in the Bible is from Psalm 32. Beautiful psalm. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. So this is kind of the the dilemma Paul's giving the Corinthians here. Look, you, you, you have a choice how to learn. We know this with our kids. Like kids, do you really want to learn by the rod of discipline or do you want to listen to my voice? And it's the same in the church. Now this doesn't mean that your leaders are always right. That's not at all what I'm saying. My point is we should eagerly learn from our spiritual leaders. We should eagerly not just learn doctrine, but eagerly be corrected by them. Okay, now I'm going to preach to the leaders. Turn around, preach to myself here for a minute. Number three, leaders serve with the day of the Lord in view. So much of this whole letter is going to be directed toward the overall, to the church. And here we get some words directed to the leaders of the church. Now, some of you may have been asking this whole sermon, John, what kind of leaders are we talking about? Like you're using this generic term. And I'm trying to be generic because I feel like in some sense Paul is being generic. He, he mentioned several apostles, you know, Paul, Apollos, Cephas. So apostles are certainly in view, but he's also talking about other people watering. Some planted, some water. God gave the increase. So I, I'm, I'm trying not to say it, this is only talking about pastors or only talking about apostles or evangelists. I think 
And just using, using leaders, somebody who's working toward the building up of the church. Paul doesn't tell us directly what leaders he has in mind. But he gives us two analogies to work with. Uh, first, a farm analogy, a field analogy. And, and so here I would say, leaders need to farm remembering that God causes the growth. We need to remember that God causes the growth. So I, don't know about, I don't know about your home. So in my home, green things die. Like the, the only plants that survive inside our house are really hardy plants. I, I don't know what about the McLeod home it is. We have a few things that Stacy has kept alive for a while, but a lot of things have died. And even when we tried to garden, you know, we, we really love tomatoes, and I would love to have a tomato garden, but we've just not been able to do it. But as little as I know about gardening or keeping plants alive, I do know that I'm not the one who causes them to grow. I do know that. And true farmers, of course, know that they cannot make things grow at all. Look at chapter 3, verse 6. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his wages according to his labor. This is just a great reminder for leaders and churches that we, we do the work, in this case, planting and watering, but, and just hear this, church, we can't change hearts. We can't bring about faith. We cannot force repentance. We cannot effect holiness. Now, we can evangelize and teach and preach, and counsel, and admonish, and protect, and shepherd, but we cannot cause growth. Now, misaligning expectations here can be devastating for leaders and for churches. The church who thinks its leaders can cause spiritual growth will be very disappointed. And the leader who thinks he can cause spiritual growth will become very disillusioned. So this reality really should drive churches and leaders to our knees. God is the one who is able to bring dead hearts to life. God is the one who can give sight to the blind. God is the one who can effectively call us and empower us to holy living. Growth comes from the Lord. So farm... Remembering that God causes growth. Number two, build with materials that will last. He changes his analogy in verse 9. He says, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. It's not like a segue like that. You're a field. No, no, no. You're a building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. 
If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So first, let's get the wrong idea out of our heads. This coming through the fire and things being burned up is not purgatory. This is not, yeah, I lived a really fleshly life and before I can go to heaven, God's going to like burn all that stuff off. That is not at all what this passage is saying. First of all, the people involved here are leaders. It's not the everyday Christian. And the thing being burned is not the leader, but their works that did not last. So this is not about purgatory. This is not about carnal Christians being purified in some way. That's not the analogy. The people in view here are Christian leaders in the church. The fire is not testing them so much as it is revealing their work, their work that would last. So what do we think to think about these building materials, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw? Like, don't, don't try to rank them, say, well, you know, this means this, this means this. So three of these will survive through the fire, and three of these will not. Gold, silver, precious stones will survive through the fire. Yes, gold will melt, but it's still gold. And uh, same thing with silver. The precious stones will survive. The others will be burned up. So when I think of gold and silver, these are kind of strange building materials. Some of you have built houses. Like, this is not your list, right? <laughs> yeah, let's make the house out of gold, silver, stones, wood, hay, straw. Like, <laughs> that's not how you build a structure. But I do think the gold, silver, and precious stones kind of point back to the temple idea Those would have been things that would have been used in the building of the tabernacle or temple. But Paul's really pressing leaders here. What is it that you're using to build? Are you building with great small business strategies, slick marketing, honed oratory skills? Are you building your brand? Those things are going to be burned up. They're not bad in and of themselves. They might enhance your ministry in some way, but they will be burned up. But instead, are you relying on faithful evangelism, teaching and preaching the Word of God, dependent prayer, sacrificially giving yourself to those you serve? These kinds of things will bear lasting fruit. And don't forget the reward. If the work anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Friend, whatever we do to build up the church of God and the kingdom of God will receive a reward. His third reminder for leaders is don't serve for the approval of man. That's always a fair question to ask somebody. Why do you want to be a leader in the church? Because there is kind of a certain prestige or honor that comes with that calling. But there, friend, there are dangerous Deep pits of iniquity for those who do this to serve man. To seek the honor for its own sake. In chapter 4, he touches on this. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you. Or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. 
Paul gives us two words here to kind of define the task of spiritual leadership. He gives us servant and steward. So throw away, CEO, president, boss, king. These are not Paul's words. This is the task of a servant. Now don't misunderstand. Paul's not saying that like spiritual leaders in the church are servants of the church. They're servants of the Lord, of their master called to serve the church. But it's not like the church becomes the boss and the spiritual leaders become the servants of them. It's not that at all. My, uh, part of my spiritual background, that's kind of the model in many of the churches. No, we're servants of the Lord. We're stewards of the things that God has given us. A steward takes what doesn't belong to them and manages it well for the sake of his master. This clarifying and orienting for the Christian leader to know who his master is, it's before God that we stand or fall. So just speaking personally for a minute, as a pastor, we are not immune to the fear of man for living for the approval of others. It's a regular battle that we have to fight by faith. Did I make this decision or did I say that in order to be well-received or liked? We're not immune to that temptation. So this is a good way for you to pray for your leaders that we would serve as servants of God, fear God, obey His Word, lead with courage. It's a great way for you to pray for us. And before we move on, so Paul doesn't say like to the Corinthians, you can't judge me, I'll decide whether I did that the right way. That's not what he says. He says, I don't even judge myself. Like God is the one who judges and we need to live before him. One final word to leaders and that is expect suffering. This is a, this is a hard word here. Look in chapter 4 verse 11. To this present hour we hunger and thirst, we're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Very colorful language. Could probably be translated more colorfully if we wanted to. Now, I don't think... I don't think we need to read these words and expect this to be the experience all the time of all Christian leaders. That's certainly not true in our context, and that's not the way I feel treated at all. But Paul is pointing out that you don't do this job out of uh, just a hunger for prestige or honor or an easy life. So your pastors here don't feel like this description fits us. We feel well cared for, well honored, um, and we're very grateful. But it is important to remember that even though in our current social climate, religious leaders and even Christian leaders are often held in high esteem, this is not the case for many Christians around the world, and it may not be the case here much longer. Our culture is quickly moving toward criminalizing or at least marginalizing many Christian convictions. So the warning for the leaders here from this passage, I believe, is 
Christian leaders must be ready to lead the way in suffering for the sake of God's kingdom. So may God give us grace to do that. So we've taken a look this morning at the ways church should relate to the leaders, the ways leaders should lead as if we're thinking of the day of Christ in view, not just today. And hopefully these introductory chapters to 1 Corinthians, because I kind of treat all of this as introductory to the rest of the book, and these introductory sermons have set the table for us to receive the, the incoming encouraging, correcting words, words that move us toward greater faith, greater obedience, greater love, greater worship, and confidence in the gospel. So remember where we began today. Y'all are God's temple. God's spirit dwells in you. We don't have to travel across town or across the world to encounter God in a meaningful, life-changing kind of way. He is here. His spirit dwells in us. And maybe for some of you, if you're, if you're not a believer, please hear this. You also do not have to go to a special place. You don't have to perform special ceremonies. You don't have to make atonement for your own sins. You can go to God by faith, right here, right now, in your seat, or in a few minutes when we sing, or when you pray with somebody at the prayer team. You can encounter and experience God's presence in a new way today. If you'll turn from your sin, trust in Christ's work of his atoning sacrifice for your sins. Put your faith in him and follow him. Let's stand and pray. Father, help us to love and treasure the church as you do. Help us to plant and to build. Help us to be ornaments in your temple that are beautiful, that display the grace and the power and the presence of God. Lord, we know that we can't bring about change in people's lives as we would like. So we pray for your power to be in our evangelism, for your power to be in our worship, for your power to be in our preaching, for your power to be in the ministry of the Holy Spirit among us, for your power to be at work in bringing healing and restoration and healing to relationships. Lord, it's not in word, but in power that you display yourself. So we pray that we would experience as your temple the power of God among us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Give us faith to see you at work and to encounter your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.